Welcome to Disrupting Japan. Straight talk from Japan's most successful entrepreneurs. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for joining me. Shakespeare only wrote 37 plays. Orson Welles only made 64 films. Mozart wrote 68 symphonies. But Disrupting Japan? Well, as of today, Disrupting Japan has 200 episodes. So, what to talk about on this special occasion? Well, I'll be giving an in-depth answer to the question I get asked the most about Japanese software and about Japanese software startups. And you know, this is a piece I've been working on, you know, on and off for over three years. I know that seems like a long time, but, but a lot of my solo podcasts come together like that. I know what I want to say, but I'll uh, bounce it around in my head for months or even years before I can make the point as an interesting story that you'll find worth listening to. Some are too short to develop into full-length shows, um, some I end up talking myself out of before I finish, and some like this one. Just take me a long time to craft the story in a way that I'm happy to put it out into the world. I've got about 30 of these articles in progress, and that's, you know, that, that's far more than I'll ever develop into podcasts. I, I've been thinking of starting a Substack newsletter to publish some of these ideas in a much shorter form. And um, l- let me know what you think. Is that a good idea? Would you subscribe? Anyway, on our 200th episode, I want to thank you for listening and for making this show possible. Now, I I realize that thank you, the listener, has become kind of a cliche in radio and podcasting, but I don't know what other words to use here. Um, I, I feel incredibly honored to be able to sit down and to have these deep conversations with some of the most creative and visionary people in Japan and to have thousands of people around the world care enough about my thoughts and opinions to listen and to get in touch and to tell people about it. So thank you for listening, and thank you for coming on this journey with me. Let's see where it takes us. And now, on with the show. Japanese software has problems. But by international standards, it's just embarrassingly bad. We all know this, but what's interesting is that there are perfectly rational, if somewhat frustrating, reasons that things turned out this way. And today, I'm going to lay all that out for you in a way that will help you understand how we got here and show you why I'm optimistic about the future. And no, This is not going to be just another rant about all the things I dislike about Japanese software. I am not going to waste your time or mine cataloging and complaining about the many, many bad practices, user-hostile design decisions, mind-bogglingly complex workflows, and poor development processes that afflict Japanese software. If you want details and debate about exactly how Japanese software falls short, or, you know, if you're just in the mood for some good old-fashioned venting about being forced to use it, 
check out Reddit or maybe Hacker News. This topic comes up there pretty often. No, for the sake of this podcast, I'm going to assume that we're all in agreement that, on average, Japanese software is just awful. That way we can spend our time talking about something far more interesting. We're going to walk through the economic events and the political forces that made today's poor quality of Japanese software almost inevitable. And by the end, I think it will give you a completely new way of looking at the Japanese software industry. You see, the story of Japanese software is not really about software. No, no. This is the story of Japanese innovation itself. The story of the ongoing struggle between disruption and control. It's a story that involves war, secret cabals, scrappy rebels, betrayal, rebirth, and perhaps redemption. So let's start at the beginning. And the beginning is further back than you might expect. To really understand how we got here, we need to go back not just to the end of World War II, but to the years after the Meiji Restoration, the late 1800s. Back when the Japanese economy was dominated by the Zaibatsu. Now, Zaibatsu is usually translated as large corporate group or family controlled corporate group. And while that is accurate, it grossly understates the massive economic and political power that these groups wielded around the turn of the 20th century. Japan's Zaibatsu were not corporate conglomerates as we think of them today. You see, although the Meiji government adopted a market based economy, and implemented a lot of capitalist reforms, it was the Zaibatsu, with the full support of the government, that kept the economy running. And the Zaibatsu system was almost feudal in nature. The national government could, and did, pass legislation regarding contract law, labor reforms, and property rights. But in practice, these were more like suggestions. In reality, as long as the Zaibatsu kept the factories running, the rail lines expanding, and the shipyards operating at capacity, the men in Tokyo didn't trouble themselves too much with the details. In practice, the Zaibatsu families had almost complete dominion over the resources, land, and people under their control. They were the law. At the turn of the previous century, there were four major Zaibatsu. Sumitomo, Mitsui, Mitsubishi, and Yasuda. And each Saibatsu had their own bank, its own mining and chemical companies, its own heavy manufacturing company, etc. But it wasn't just industry. Each of these Saibatsu groups had strong political and military alignments as well. For example, Mitsui had strong influence over the army, while Mitsubishi had a great deal of sway over the Imperial Navy. At the start of World War II, the four Zaibatsu families controlled over 50% of Japan's economy. This fact, when combined with their political influence, quite understandably made Japan's military government very uncomfortable. And during the war, the military wrested away a bit of the Zaibatsu's power and nationalized some of their assets. After Japan's defeat, 
The American occupation forces considered the Zaibatsu a serious economic and political risk to Japan becoming a liberal, democratic, fully developed nation. They targeted 16 firms for complete dissolution and another 24 for major reorganizations. That was supposed to be the end of the Zaibatsu. Now, I, I say supposed to because those of you who know Japanese history understand that this never really happened. Of course, many things changed. Important political and social reforms were implemented. The legal system was greatly strengthened. A lot of Zaibatsu assets were nationalized, and the Zaibatsu themselves ceased to be. At least, officially. You see, the Zaibatsu were quickly allowed to restructure in greatly weakened but very familiar forms as Keiretsu. And this was permitted for two main reasons. First, as the Cold War heated up in the 40s and 50s, America's idealistic vision for a democratic and progressive Japan took a back seat to the more practical and pressing need to develop Japan into a bulwark against communism. And that meant prioritizing economic growth over social reforms. With these new goals in mind, both the American occupation forces and the Japanese government quite correctly concluded that having something like the Zaibatsu groups would lead to a faster, more predictable growth than tearing everything down and rebuilding from scratch. The second important and kind of surprising reason was that Almost no one in Japan really wanted to see the Zaibatsu broken up. Not the politicians, certainly not the leaders of the Zaibatsu, not the public at large, and to the endless frustration and confusion of Western labor organizers, not even the rank-and-file Zaibatsu workers and employees. In fact, at one point, 15,000 Matsushita union workers signed a petition demanding that the Matsushita Zaibatsu not be broken up. So in the end, important changes were made. Labor rights and contract law were strengthened significantly, and even more Zaibatsu assets were confiscated. The traditional family holding companies were dissolved, but they were replaced by cross-company shareholdings and interlocking corporate boards that achieved much the same result, but in a much more transparent and manageable way. And so, most of Japan's Ibatsu were allowed to morph into the smaller, less threatening, and much more manageable Keidetsu. And in the same way that the Zaibatsu defined the economic miracle that was Japan's Meiji-era expansion, the Keiretsu would come to define the economic miracle that was Japan's post-war expansion. Today there are six major and a couple dozen minor Keiretsu groups. And during Japan's economic expansion, as much as possible, they kept their business within their own Keiretsu families. Projects were financed by the Keiretsu Bank, the materials and know-how were imported by the Keiretsu Trading Company, and the final products would be assembled in the appropriate Keidetsu Brands factory. And supporting all these flagship brands were, and, and still are, tens of thousands of very small, exclusive manufacturers that make up the Keidetsu supply chain and the bulk of the Japanese economy. 
And with the exception of a tiny handful of true startup companies like Honda and Sony, all of Japan's brands that were famous before the year 2000 or so are Keidetsu brands. And for those of you who think big companies can't innovate, let me remind you that from the 50s to the 70s, these Keidetsu groups began innovating, disrupting, and dominating almost every industry on the planet. From cars, to cameras, to machine parts, to steel, to semiconductors, to watches, to home electronics, Japan's Keidetsu simply rewrote the rules. But how did the Keidetsu do in the world of software development? Well, pretty darn well, actually. It, it's important to remember, though, that the software industry of the 60s and 70s was very different than it is today. The software development process itself was actually rather similar. Fred Brooks wrote The Mythical Man Month about his experience during this era, and it remains one of the best books on software engineering and project management today. But the way software was bought and sold was completely different. In the 60s and 70s, software was written for specific and very expensive hardware and the software requirements were negotiated as part of the overall purchase contract. Software was not viewed so much as a product, but more like a service, similar to integration, training, and ongoing support and maintenance. It was usually sold on a time and materials basis, and sometimes it was just thrown in for free to sweeten the deal. The real money was in the hardware. Software in this time, both in Japan and globally, was written to meet the spec. It did not matter if it was creative, innovative, easy to use, or elegant. It just had to meet the spec. In fact, trying to build exceptional software in this era was considered a waste of resources. After all, the product had already been sold, and the contracts had already been signed. The goal back then, just like many system integration projects today, was to build software that was just good enough to get the client to sign off on it as complete. Software that met the customer spec was, by definition, good software. Japan's Keiretsu did well in the age of big iron, although Fujitsu, NEC, and Hitachi never seriously challenged IBM and Univac's global dominance in the 60s and 70s, they did pretty well in many computers and large office systems. They were innovators. However, when the PC revolution arrived in the late 1980s, Japanese industry as a whole was hopelessly unprepared, and not for the reasons you might think. The reason Japanese software development stopped advancing in the 1980s had nothing to do with the lack of talented software developers. It was a result of Japan's new economic structure as a whole and the Keidetsu in particular. As a market, personal computers were something fundamentally new. Sure, the core technology and the hardware were direct continuations from the previous era. But this new market was completely different. The PC market quickly coalesced around a small number of standardized operating systems and hardware architectures. The Keidetsu did pretty well on the hardware side of the market, making some really impressive machines, particularly laptops. 
But a market for non-spec or shrink-wrap software was something new to everyone. It required delighting the customer and knowing what the customer wanted before they did. It was a kind of a challenge that the Keiretsu of the 60s and 70s would have thrown themselves into wholeheartedly, innovated aggressively, and then dominated. But things in Japan had become very different in the 1980s. Here was a chance to define and lead a new global industry, a chance for the Keiretsu to build a software industry from the ground up. But wait a minute. Why should they? Sure, back in the 60s when Japan's economy was small, survival required looking outwards, competing globally, making long-term investments, and innovating to make the best products in the world. But this was the 80s. Japan was the second largest economy on the planet and in the middle of the largest economic boom the world had ever seen. This was the era of Japan as number one with economists predicting that Japan's GNP would be larger than America's within a decade. With such a lucrative and pretty well-protected market right at their fingertips, it made much more sense for the Keiretsu to focus on the easy money rather than to take risky and expensive bets on an uncertain and emerging global market. Now, in traditional form, each Keiretsu group had their own technology firm who started selling PCs and software, some to consumers, but the big money was in corporate sales. And since the Keiretsu liked to keep the business in the family, these technology companies grew and profited by selling to their captive customers within their Keiretsu group. And just like before, they made the real money on integration and customization. An unfortunate result of this is that the big systems integration companies, or SIs, emerged as powerful players, and Japan's software firms never had to compete globally or even with each other. Japan simply missed the opportunity to develop a globally relevant PC software industry. Japan's software industry in the 80s and 90s remained much like it was in the mainframe era. The software had to be just good enough for the client to sign off on it. And since they were largely captive clients, unable to look outside their Keiretsu group for support, that was a pretty low bar. But hey, as long as the economy was booming, no one minded spending lavishly to keep all the work in the Keiretsu family. And all those little software defects could always be fixed in, quote, phase two of the project. Software development was an exercise in box checking. You implemented a feature once the customer had asked for it specifically, and the contracts had been signed. And by the way, this not only caused Japan to miss out on the global software industry, but it marked the beginning of the collapse of innovation across Japanese industry. Over the next 30 years, business software would become a key driver of both innovation and efficiency. But by outsourcing their IT strategy to a single integrator, Japanese enterprise had tied themselves to an anchor that would ensure almost every industry fell further and further behind the technology curve with each passing year. And Japan has still not recovered from this. Even today, most enterprise systems are decades behind their global competitors. But as we'll see a bit later, things are happening now that could 
enable a quantum leap forward in Japan. So, what was it like to be a software developer in Japan in the 80s and 90s? It was pretty bad. Software development was considered rather low-skill work. It didn't pay well, and it was viewed as a kind of clerical work. The job was simply to write software that was close enough to whatever sales had promised the client while they were out drinking last week. New hires with degrees in literature, business, or law, or whatever, were rotated through software development for a few years to give them a sense of how different parts of the company worked. There was no real career path in software development. I mean, maybe you could move up into project management or over into sales, but if you were still actually writing code when you were 30, eh, people kind of wondered what went wrong. Now, of course, there were some great, e even visionary software developers in Japan at that time. I knew some of them. People who wanted to make computers do new things. People who saw how technology could disrupt other industries and developers who simply had a passion for making software that delighted users. There were plenty of developers like that in the 80s and 90s, and they were miserable. Now, interestingly, hardware engineers were viewed very differently. Both then and now, hardware engineers are highly respected in Japan. Engineers are some of the most admired people at companies like Toyota, Mitsubishi, and Sony. And so, perhaps unsurprisingly, hardware innovation continued at a furious pace during the 80s and 90s. Products like the Walkman and the Nintendo consoles achieved global success, and the domestic market was filled with electronic diaries, dictionaries, and planners that were way ahead of what was available in the West. And of course, eventually, iMode. Japanese consumers were sending email and browsing the web years before the BlackBerry was released and almost a decade before the iPhone. But the rest of the world was moving in a different direction. The rest of the world was moving away from dedicated hardware and towards innovative software running on standard hardware platforms. As Mark Andreessen would later point out, software was eating the world. Now, as the dot-com bubble started to inflate, Japan began to realize they needed talented software developers. But without a software industry that actually valued software developers, companies had no idea where to find them. The best talent was usually unrecognized and trapped at the lower levels of the org chart, and there was not much of a future pipeline either. Since software engineering was not a respected or profitable career, few students opted to pursue it. Some did, of course, but these were the people that just loved programming. It was like becoming a musician or a manga artist. It's great that you're following your dreams. You might make it, but, you know, the odds were not in your favor. And so, when the foreign software companies started crashing into Japan in the 90s, the domestic industry could barely put up a fight. The dot-com boom of the late 90s was the first wave of venture-funded, disruptive innovation in Japan. But it was not yet time for Japan's software developers to step into the spotlight. The successful founders of that era were mostly well-connected or incredibly scrappy businessmen. 
the general opinion of software developers hardly changed at all. They just weren't the kind of people you would trust to run a company. I started my first Japanese startup during the dot-com boom. And at that time, I think the fact that I was a technical founder was even more unusual than the fact that I was a foreign founder. Of course, in, in one sense, the dot-com boom was an amazing time to start a software startup in Japan. It, you could call up almost any talented developer you knew, let them know that they'd be working on something important, that they would have meaningful input into product development, they'd be on a team that cared about code quality, and, and that their skills would be respected. And yeah, yeah, they'd want to come on board. The 90s and the noughts is often referred to as Japan's lost decade. And it was not a good time for the Keiretsu companies. Not only did their power continue to weaken, but increased scrutiny of their cross-shareholdings and financials, and the merger of several banks across Keiretsu lines meant that business as usual was over. And pushing the knife in even deeper, all of the implied economic and social guarantees that the Keiretsu system was based on were unraveling. In previous decades, Japan had focused on global exports of domestically made goods. But now, not only was the domestic market attracting a greater focus, but Japanese industry began moving production out of Japan into cheaper markets. This was considered a betrayal by thousands of mom-and-pop manufacturers who'd spent their lives as a highly integrated and specialized part of a single Keiretsu supply chain and who now found themselves suddenly cut off. Japan's famous lifetime employment system effectively ended during this period as well. It made sense for corporate groups to promise lifetime employment and predictable promotions when profits kept rising and labor was scarce. But now, faced with mounting losses, corporate Japan began walking back all those implied promises. This was a shock for Japan. It was a breach of the social contract that, that held everything together. If hard work and loyalty would not be rewarded, why dedicate your life to the company? To the distress of pundits and politicians, Many young Japanese were now saying they had no interest at all in joining the corporate world. But the truth is, especially now that we can look back on it, these decades were not really lost decades at all. Growth slowed, and the changes were incredibly painful, but they were absolutely necessary to set the foundations for the coming wave of startup innovation and for Japan's software developers to finally get the respect they so deeply deserve. I mark 2010 as the year Japan's software developers finally started stepping into the spotlight. Although, things started moving a bit before that. There were two triggers that led to this development. First, the emergence of cloud computing. And the second, the introduction of the smartphone. And although these were both technological developments, it was not the technology itself that led to the change. Cloud computing drastically reduced the capital and time required to start a startup. In the dot-com era a decade before, starting an internet startup required purchasing racks of servers and paying system administrators to keep them running. But suddenly, fully configured, maintained, and secure servers could be had for a few cents per minute. Pay as you go. 
Suddenly, Japan's software developers didn't need to explain their idea to a VC and convince them that it would sell. They could just build things and get people to start using them and start paying for them. And that's just what they did. The other important development was the introduction of the iPhone in 2007 and Android a year later. Not just because of the technology, but because of the change in the software business model. Japan's iMode was years ahead of the West when it first came out. But getting your app on iMode was largely a matter of lengthy negotiations with the telcos for one of the few highly coveted slots on that menu. The smartphone ecosystems were different. Anyone who could develop an app of reasonable quality could deploy it and sell it. There were no business connections, hardball negotiations, or revenue commitments required. So 2010 marked the beginning of the end of the software startup gatekeepers. As more and more talented developers realized how easy it was to start a startup, more and more started choosing startups over the traditional low-status software career path at large companies. And this, combined with a large dose of Silicon Valley glamour, has completely transformed Japan's image of the software developer. Software developers are valued and respected today. Unlike the dot-com days, both startups and enterprise compete aggressively to recruit and retain talented programmers, e even though there's a lot more of them today. Thankfully, people also talk a lot more about code quality. Of course, this attitude shift was much broader than just developers. With the safety net of lifetime employment and guaranteed promotions removed, people had to become less risk-averse and more innovative. Those workers who had rejected the corporate life became freelancers and formed the core of a flexible startup workforce. And some of those tiny supply chain companies began to rethink their business models. And this brings us to the start of the Disrupting Japan podcast about eight and a half years ago. We've talked to the innovators and followed the development of the startup ecosystem together during that time. So as we talk here together at the start of 2023, what does the future look like for Japanese software? Japan has had a lot of catching up to do over the past 15 years. After basically sitting out the global PC and dot-com revolutions, Japanese software developers have been making up for lost time. And in the software development space, Japan is developing a competitive software market in, in some areas. But on average, there's still a long way to go. Japan's once-dominant systems integrators will continue to see their power decline. Their customer lock-in is already fading fast. And B2B SaaS software startups are letting Japanese enterprises leapfrog to modern IT systems for less money than it costs to maintain their SI-run legacy systems. Uh, the SIs won't disappear, of course. There will always be a need for good systems integrators, and the more forward-thinking ones are already trying to reinvent themselves. However, the days when the SIs could dictate their clients' IT strategy are coming to an end. And that is a very good thing for Japanese software, Japanese startups, and Japanese innovation as a whole. The Kishida administration has made startups a national priority. 
and the importance of quality software and software startups in Japan has never been higher. Even the old Keiretsu firms have come around. They're increasingly looking to software startups to supplement internal R&D through both M&A and through long-term partnerships. In fact, last year, Keidanren, Japan's largest business federation, an organization that was one of the main architects and drivers of Japan's post-war economic expansion, Keidanren called on its member companies to greatly increase their startup investment and partnerships. So I'm optimistic. As always, things will develop differently in Japan. In the same way the Zaibatsus defined Japan's Meiji-era economic miracle, and the Keidetsu came to define Japan's post-war economic miracle. From some new combination of startups, enterprise, and academia will emerge something that will define Japan's next economic miracle. Today is a very good time to be developing software in Japan. So thank you for sticking with me for this, this 150-year history of Japanese software development and for over eight years and 200 episodes of Disrupting Japan. And you know, after all this, I feel like things are just getting started. So if you want to talk more about Japanese software, and come on, I know you do, come by disruptingjapan.com show 200 and let's talk. And hey, if you enjoy the show, share a link online or, you know, just tell people about it. But most of all, thanks for listening. And thank you for letting people interested in Japanese startups know about the show. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening to Disrupting Japan.